In our last episode, we journeyed with architect Bradley Corey into how mixed-use development is reshaping our neighborhoods. Today, we will focus on what may be getting lost in this process. Our guide is Susan Robb, whose body of work takes note of these changes while focusing on finding ways to cause the places that we live in and work in continue to ground us emotionally despite these changes. Her work is an ongoing investigation into people and our emotional connections to place. Her media includes sculpture, photography, video, performance, interventions, and socially engaged projects. Come and join us on this artistic adventure of places that matter emotionally. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you are listening to EK On The Go. Today, we will look at the concept of placemaking and the importance of observing and celebrating place, and also what happens to us emotionally when we lose touch with this sense of place. How hidden in the Seattle of today are little nuggets that reference the Seattle of yesterday. Whether it's possible for us to connect emotionally with new places as they appear so suddenly, and what is meant by the concept of utopia, and how this concept may be important in guiding us today. And stick around. At the end of the show, we'll let you know about how you may explore Seattle's sexual landscape. If you've ever wondered whether the Seattle chill is a myth, you'll want to stick around for this. Hey, Susan. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. During our earlier uh, conversations preparing for today's discussion, I sensed how much your essence as a human being translates into your work as you draw on your sensorial responses. Mm-hmm. What is this emotional connection to places where does it stem from? Well, I think that it definitely, it's coming from my childhood. Um, my dad is Jewish. My mom's Catholic. I grew up in Connecticut. And, you know, at this time um, that I was a child, this marriage was still seen as something that was, um, you know, kind of, it was like a racially mixed marriage. And the neighbors, the next door neighbors, shot at my brother and I in our backyard and um, called us racial slurs. Shot? What, what was the weapon? Um, a gun. Oh. And so my parents were like, yep, it's time to pack up and move out of here. So uh, my dad went about looking for a place to rent, but there were covenants and, um, you know, redlining basically. So um, he couldn't find a place. And so we... Um, we finally found somebody to to build something in a in a neighborhood that was under construction, and um, when we visited the construction site, um, my dad found that the construction workers had like gouged things into the sheetrock, you know, anti-Semitic sort of Christian things, and then we're putting the paneling, because it was the 70s, uh, we're putting the paneling over the sheetrock. So this was sort of like baked into the house that I grew up in. This is sounding like a Stephen King novel. It, it, well, that's what happens when you live in New England. It's like a common common thing. Um, so this was a really weird uh, introduction into the world. And being, I was a three or four, and none of this really made any sense. But there was also this this weird exclusion, um, because my, my dad is Jewish, and Judaism is matrilineal. So we were sort of, um, you know, not accepted as a Jewish family. And then we weren't accepted as a, you know, Catholic family either, a Christian family. So there was that sort of in play. And then additionally, there was the relationship between me and my father, which was um, strained because I was, um, well, I think now we have all these sort of more sophisticated ways of talking about gender but I was sort of, you know, I guess I, like using the words of today, I would be sort of um, non-binary or, 
gender fluid or something. I just didn't feel like whatever. Right. I mean, I was just like, I'm me. And my dad is, um, you know, he was an older dad. He, my dad was born in the 20s. So this was uh, not acceptable. And um, so there was also this sort of um, lack of place within my family. Okay. So there was no place outside or inside that I was really accepted. And so like you might do, I took off and went to the woods <laughs> and um, found total acceptance and wonderful things out in the woods. And um, Did you run away like for hours or for years? No, for hours. Because, you know, at the time in the 70s, the, there was no parental supervision. Like it was incredible um, the amount of freedom that you had as a child. Um, th in fact, I mean, all the neighbors' kids, their parents would say, get out of the house. That was the main thing is like, we don't want to see you. And um, so, yeah, as long as I wasn't in the house, it was fine. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I just walk around in the woods and have adventures. And, you know, I had like favorite trees and favorite kinds of grass and like my favorite rocks and things. And just a super connection to the place that I was living in and the changes that took place at those sites during uh, the different seasons. And, you know, I would visit the same meadows, like, you know, in the winter and in the spring and see, like, the difference. And it was the place where I felt um, safe. And where was this in the world? This was in southeastern Connecticut. Okay. So I think that it was so important to me, these, these, these spots. Mm -hmm. And um, it was my home was... was out there. You were mentioning that you sort of found a place for yourself by really getting away from your family and um, discovering, you know, the wilderness. How did you then reconnect? Because obviously as an artist, you're engaged with people and community. So how did you find your way back? You know, I think that I, I use the wild or, you know, the nature to reconnect. So um, finding that bridge uh, between the natural world and the built environment and bringing people along in that journey. So, um, for instance, I did a project called The Long Walk, where I would lead 50 people on a four-day walk. Uh, we would start in Golden Gardens and we'd go to Snoqualmie Falls using the regional trail system. Wow. This was a commission from uh, King County Parks and For Culture. Was it done during summer? It was done during <laughs> summer, yeah. And um, I would find sort of ad hoc places for us to stay each night, and I would do projects with the group, and I would invite other artists to come and do projects as well. Um, I invited chefs to create thematic dinners that were uh, using uh, the food that was sourced from the uh, farms that we walked past. So by going into into these spaces, um, I was able to to create a, a community. And um, so I, I realized that the way back in was through that connection. That's beautiful. So you brought others along. Mm -hmm. 50 yeah. people. I did the project for three years. Huh. Um, so, yeah, it was... Very cool. Yeah. 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 So yeah. the other thing that, is, that occurred to me when looking at your body of work, and you're relatively young, but you've, you know, you've gone through so many different media, is that you don't, you, your work crosses over into, it doesn't follow any type of guardrails media-wise. Yeah. So you um, you were the bassist and singer for The Incredible Force of Junior from 1992 to 1998. Mm -hmm. So how did music sort of, how did you wind up, mm. you know, in a punk yeah, rock band? Yeah. You know? um, I mean, music was probably the very first thing I fell in love with. And I have a, a brother who's 12 years older than me, and he introduced me to all kinds of things that he was listening to. 
and also the like the album art, which was pretty. Um, I remember seeing this Pink Floyd album cover and just you know being fascinated with it. Um, it was the this man that was on fire. So this whole idea of art and sound and and it was another place to escape to that was kind of free from judgment. And then over time, I, you know, got kind of like infatuated with like the punk rock sort of situation and kind of like the whole DIY thing. And where were you at that time in Connecticut? I was still in Connecticut. I was in, you know, it was like, you know, junior high school, high school. Um, I DJed on the college radio station for a little bit and, you know, there was so much energy in that, in that time and in that music and um, it seemed like, you know, it was the total apt place for me to go. And um, and it also sort of was a container for all sorts of other things because, you know, it's performance, it's uh, design, it's art, it's expression. It, it just contained all the other things that I wanted to do. Awesome. So that's, that's how that. Okay. Yeah. So fast forward to Seattle. So I have um, always loved the parking squid. Mm-hmm. Is that the name parking of it? Squid, the yeah. parking squid near the waterfront. And I always smiled when I walked by it and pointed out to my kid and so forth. And I, I'm sure some of our listeners have noticed it as well. It's this gleaming steel squid um, below the viaduct, which won't be there much longer. Um, I had no idea who created it, and mm-hmm. I'm glad to see that it was you. So it was just curious. It's hel- so hilarious and also kind of um, menacing. Um, to me, I guess that's the thing with art. Everyone has their own interpretation. Uh Um, so I'm just curious where the inspiration came from and what purpose it serves and what Mm. the heck is it? Uh, so it was a commission from Seattle Department of Transportation to create bike parking. And initially, um, so there's supposed to be like a number of parking squid, but, um, I think they lost funding. So there was like, it was right at the economic downturn. Um, so we just got, we squeaked out one parking squid. Um, and why a parking squid? So it's place-based. Um, there's giant squid in Puget Sound, and what better thing to hold onto your bike than a giant squid? Is that squid, like, bigger than the actual squid, or are there squid of that scale, do you think? Oh, it's much smaller than a giant squid. You're kidding. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. So it is menacing. Yeah. yeah. No, there's, you know, the, they're enormous. Okay. You know, 50 feet or something. And how big is a sculpture for those that haven't seen it's, it? So it's 18 by 5 by 7 feet. Wow. Okay. Um, and uh, the idea was just to make something that was fun to lock your bike to, that was iconic and memorable and, you know, was Seattle. And um, also I like saying parking squid. Mm-hmm. It sounds Why not? good. Yeah. yeah. Good. Um, Susan, what is a place that puts a smile on your face or that matters most to you when you walk by it? Well, there's two things that come to my mind, not far from where the parking squid is. Um, on the waterfront, there's um, just past the sculpture park, there's a trail that you can basically walk to uh, Magnolia on. And I love that trail. I love what it what you travel through. And it's, you know, it's sort of industrial and kind of reclaimed space. And, um, you know, you can, you're looking out at Puget Sound and, and then you in the train tracks and it's, you know, and then all of a sudden you sort of find yourself crossing this, um, this wooden bridge that goes over the train tracks to get to, um, the locks. And, um, 
you're like deposited in this whole other world. And um, it's it's just a it's a really beautiful path through Seattle. Great. Yeah. And then you mentioned that there were two places. Oh, the other place is um, it's no it doesn't exist anymore. Um, it was Liam's Aquarium Shop in um, the International District. And um, this was uh, the best art installation I've ever seen in my life. Mm. It was, um, you know, an aquarium shop. But Blade Runner is the thing that comes most to mind. And the owner, maybe Liam, I don't know, just had, I mean, it was just like full from floor to ceiling with like aquariums stacked on top of each other, all feeding into each other with um, PVC pipe and there were he also sold chickens and I don't know what you could probably get anything in there. Wow. Um, it was like the kind of place in Blade Runner where they like sell the like the eyeballs, uh, right? Yeah, um, and it was a little like stepping into a whole other world um, wow. and and fantastic, just totally weird. So I missed that place. Mm. That was that was mm. a pretty great little moment in Seattle. Do you know what's there now? I don't think anything's there. The building, there was the a fire still. in the building. Uh-huh. And um, I think that it's just, it's not inhabited. TBD. Yeah, yeah, yeah TBD. <laughs> exactly. So Seattle has changed dramatically over the last decade. And every year, it just seems like the rate of change is speeding up. I have a photo on my phone, which I'm not going to pull up, that has, I was, uh, my son and I were walking along 3rd Avenue. And it was a picture of the Space Needle, but it's now dwarfed by all these other buildings mm-hmm. and more coming. It was actually from near the Amazon spheres. Down, I took the picture. <laughs> So the landscape changes and then the meaning of it also changes. Certainly the Space Needle was the icon and now it's, you know, like a little pin. So I'm just curious how an artist, you know, like yourself is able to document these changes, but then remain inclusive to sort of the people that are coming here and maybe don't know any better. It seems like there's a tension. Yeah, for sure. I I feel very negative sometimes about the change just because I've seen it. And then I meet people that have just arrived recently. And they could care less. Yeah, 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 and and they'll probably who knows how long those people will be here. So does it matter? I mean, are they are they permanent? Are they trying to put roots here? Um, or, or maybe they're like impressions, like your first, like when you travel, right? You experience a new city, and you have you take great. Fo- I take great photographs because I'm seeing things with fresh eyes. Yeah. So for them, you know, it's fresh, new, and wonderful. Yeah. Perhaps. And um, certainly, you know, I came here in the early 90s and there was still, um, you know, people were lamenting about the things that were had just recently gone away. And it's it's just an accelerated rate of departure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the tensions in Seattle right now. It's like, whose Seattle is this? And do we have the right to our past? It's a, a good question to ask. I don't know that. I mean, I think the developers would say, no, we don't have a right to our past. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I don't, and, you know, as an artist, I don't know quite what the answer to that is artistically. And I think that many of us have struggled to find that. And part of it is maybe making the the new things um, as meaningful as they can be and as... um, well, one example is my wife works at CLU and they're building a new residence hall. And it's the name of it is, I don't remember her name, but she's a, a it's a Lahoochee word. And it is named after this woman who also preserved the culture and the Lahoochee language. So it's a, there's a story there. Yes, absolutely. Know? And in Seattle, you didn't have to necessarily name this building after this woman. Right. And, and I think that, um, I mean, that brings up a good point that, you know, the this land has been taken and changed by Westerners 
And I mean, is it is it even ours to have this uh, lamentation about, you know, maybe that's just a a form of uh, privilege? It's inauthentic. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you you have a tour called the Urban Architecture Tour, Mm -hmm. and it uh, tours your guests through parts of downtown Seattle. Can you tell us what the tour is, uh, where the idea came from? Sure. Um, so I was the artist in residence for the city of Seattle. I was writing the public arts master plan for downtown. And during that, during my residency, um, I talked with uh, the urban forestry department about um, these these tree grates. They were a piece of public art that was put in place, designed by artists um, and put in place in the early 90s. So tree grates, meaning the grates that surround the bases of trees? Exactly. And um, so they were artist-designed tree grates. And um, I can't remember, there was some number of them, maybe six different versions. And they they talked about the trees that were growing um, through them. So, you know, there was a little leaf linden, there was a ginkgo, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so it, it, it helped orient you to the trees that were growing in your city. But the problem with the grates was that they didn't really allow for the trees to grow. And so... Because the dimension of the, the hole The dimension was, of the hole was too uh, small. And, is that like an engineering um, lack of planning? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so, um, so uh, it created a, a bunch of problems with the grates. Um, they would uh, get sort of cattywampus, and also the, the sidewalk itself would, you know, get interrupted by the tree growth. And it was sort of a problem. And over time, um, I mean, there were many, many of these. Over time, they sort some of them disappeared. Some of them were replaced. And so we started t- that our conversation about this urban space started out with these tree grates. And um, I started sort of looking at how um, the trees, like ideas of trees, not necessarily the trees themselves, sort of popped up in the city of Seattle, in uh, the downtown space. And so I started looking at... Um, the leaves of remembrance. So there are these bronze leaves that you might see embedded in the sidewalk um, that are bearing the birth and death dates of people who had experienced homelessness. Mm. And um, so you can go online and read about these people's lives. And there's this Anne and Patrick Poirier installation on Second and University, which is um, talking about Zeus, who one of his um, attributes was, um, he was, um, believe it was the maple tree or the oak tree. Mm, I can't remember now. Mm. Um, but so there, and, you know, I started connecting all these different points um, and it it sort of created a, this larger story about gentrification, trees, public art, redlining, um, the the building of I-5. And so just pulling on this this little note of the tree just sort of opened up all of these mm. these uh, this other information. Okay, when we were preparing you, we were talking about, I love Buckminster Fuller and the mm-hmm. spheres, and so the notion that came out of the 60s, which was a time of social experimentation. Yes. So what's the connection to the, the tour? The first stop on the tour is uh, the Amazon spheres, and um, the spheres, uh, at least visually, look quite a bit like Buckminster Fuller's geodesic domes, which were utopically about providing shelter for the greatest number of people as economically as possible, uh, which is sort of um, the exact opposite, (laughs) I would say, of the spheres. Um, So optically, at least, um, 
the the spheres being in Seattle when there's this homeless epidemic um, mm. just looks and maybe feels sort of wrong. And to take care of these plants with such care when there's people, um, you know, living and dying on the streets, it's difficult to say the least. Okay, priorities. Priorities, yeah. And and just a shift, obviously, in, in our culture. You know, Jeff Bezos is hugely, he's, I mean, to say he's rich is not enough. We, you know, it's just, he, he just benefits greatly uh-huh. in our culture. Yeah. yeah. So the Seattle Colonnade Park, mm-hmm. um, can you tell us what is that? Yep. So that's called uh, Plymouth Pillars Park. Um, so Plymouth Pillars Park are the pillars from uh, Plymouth Congregational Church um, that was um, torn down to make way for I-5. And I-5 was contentious because it um, basically was separating the city along the same lines that the redlining separated the city. And about when was this, by the way, in history? This was in, I want to say, it was completed in 1967, so it must have been in the late 50s. So if you look at the red line map, it's sort of the I-5 like follows that. And so it was uh, separating uh, the area with the greatest population density from the area with the greatest job density. And Plymouth Church was in the way. So they they tore it down and the columns were transported um, the church was demolished. The church was demolished, but this amazing woman who was a um, philanthropist, uh, public art lover, she she had the the columns moved and placed in this park and dedicated to um, as a park in, I believe it was the late sixties. And so I think that it's her way. <laughs> She's a very, very smart woman um, because the first thing you ask is, why is this park here? It's very like, strange. What is this doing? And basically, she she built, um, she rebuilt the church at the, you know, the precipice of I-5. So you become the congregation looking down at this thing that has divided the city. Mm. And um, hopefully that is putting you in service um, to make things differently, you know, different in the future. And then the other thing when we were talking earlier about this was the the, the relation between columns and trees. Yeah, so columns have their history um, in ancient sacred groves of trees. So initially, that was where ancient worship was done, and then uh, eventually, those columns were transported. Or those trees were transported. Um, to the cities, and then those trees were sort of remade in stone as columns. And so, you know, seeing the rows of columns was like being in an ancient sacred grove of trees. Mm. So um, when you see columns, that's what should come to mind, Mm. though time erases things, doesn't it? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So your work investigates people and then their connection to place as a search for utopia. Is that fair? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. (laughs) And so one of the things that we talked about earlier was how, like, the search for utopias is it's the idea of making a better world, but sometimes it has just the opposite effect. Yeah, it's our meddling. So how does this apply to Seattle, in your opinion? I think it's about convenience, right? So we, like, utopia is, um, in some ways, there's this idea of, you know, if things were easier, then our lives would be perfect. And um, so, for instance, it's easy to just, like, tear down everything and rebuild it uh, without 
considering um, people's connection to that place and what you're doing by um, making like a whole better (laughs) by making a population feel alienated from their home. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of er drive as a human to be connected to place, to have an emotional connection to where you live. And so if you disrupt that emotional connection, um, you know, things happen, people feel alienated and, um, it's a form of trauma and it's disruptive. I mean, and I mean that, that sounds too banal when I use it like that, but it, it really, um, it has a a deep and lasting effect on people and it would have been less convenient to change the city in a different way, (laughs) but convenience states that they do it the way they do so it's it's utopic it's somebody's version of utopia probably the people that are making the money but it's uh not so for others were um were freeways utopian in a sense in the 50s and 60s when they were sort of laid out yeah i mean i think that there's always this fantasy for like i mean this sort of like white male convenience they drove those freeways often through um neighborhoods with people of color Mm -hmm. um separating them from you know, the rest of the city, just like they did in Seattle. The other thing that I think about here is, I mean, I've, I grew up in Tacoma, um, but I think people move here with, they do have a fantasy of the Pacific Northwest as being like this wilderness, yeah. you know, that is somewhat more utopic than big cities. You know, there's really nowhere else to go once you get here. But I think the hope is that, that it's a beautiful place. And it is. I mean, it is like, I, I think that Seattle is an outstanding place to live. I mean, even with all of this, um, I can't really think of anywhere else that I would like to live, at least in the United States. And I, I mean, I, there is, you know, there is some things about what is allowed here that's, you know, historically and currently that's not allowed in other places. And, um, for example, you know, we were the first to, you know, gay marriage, legalized marijuana. Uh-huh. Um, I think that there's um, sort of an allowance for people to be the way they want to be, yeah. more so than in other places. Um, there was this notion of ecotopia in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. No, the- and and the, the sense that um, there is kind of a wild landscape still to, to retreat to and to be part of, and um, I think that makes people feel... Um, even if you don't go, even if you don't go out there, just the notion that it's there and available feels somehow special. Good. Great. So let's talk about civic engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just curious how from art, you know, did you wind up in civic engagement, which seems not necessarily the same thing. <laughs> all, all the way just th- such bureaucratic things as writing up, you know. Sort Public of, art plans yeah, and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, Sometimes I'm like, how did I do that? Yeah, um, how did you? I mean, that's kind of uh, from being a punk rock you know, performer to writing up civic plans. Yeah. Um, What's the journey? Well, you know, even those experiences um, as a child, like going to those spaces um, sort of set me up for wanting to create inclusive spaces, like in having a um, sensitivity to inclusion and um, wanting to make, I mean, I don't think that it's a stretch to want to make public space into something that everybody can share in. So, I mean, it 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 does. I mean, on on some levels, it might seem kind of how did that come about? But then in other ways, it does seem to me like oh yeah, there's a total like there's a linear line thing. Sure. Um, you know, I was making a lot of like interactive public or you know interactive sculptures 
in museum spaces and those then sort of grew, they outgrew the museum space. So then I started to make them outside and then, you know, immediately they become public, whether you mean it to be public art or not. And then those experiences just seemed much more fulfilling to me than the experiences that I was having in the museums. Which are more private. Yeah. And, you know, people, you you get a, a certain cross-section of, of the public in the museum that, um, and it's a different one. It's more inclusive, you know, outside. And um, so I was kind of interacting with a broader range of people that I found that experience much more interesting to me. And then, you know, more and more just started looking at spaces and thinking about um, how we interact with them and how sort of cooler art makes uh, for better public space and, um, you know, thinking about uh, how you can push that limit and what's allowed and what should be allowed and, you know, experiencing public space in other countries and other places and wanting to, you know, offer that to, to people in Seattle. It's interesting when we were talking earlier also about like the man on the horse phenomenon. So public art isn't necessarily inclusive or cool. So uh, yeah, it, yeah, I would say that... So you know, come, like on the East Coast, there's definitely, you know, the what I grew up with was the sort of man on the horse. And it's it's a kind of public art that... Like an um, army general, mm-hmm, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's not speaking to me on any level. And um, it's maybe actually it's, um, it's violent, you know. So how could you change that? And what could replace it? So many things. So what's an example of some definitely public and more permanent public art that you've been involved in that you feel really proud of? So I, my general take is um, I'm much more interested in temporary public art um, because I think that um, the excitement of having the sort of like city moments of, you know, the, the change and the interaction and the immediacy of the art responding to like the moments, um, like politically or socially or um, whatever. So give me a compelling example. Well, you know, one thing that's not my my work, but I thought was great was um, the New York subway when um, Trump was elected and people started putting those uh, post-it notes in the subway. And the the way that that grew into this, um, this like ad hoc amazing piece of public art that really gave people a sense of belonging like that I think is tremendous. I mean, you just like, thank God, you know, (laughs) that we have that and that that's allowed. Mm -hmm. So that's an experience of public art. Um, There was, I, I never experienced this firsthand, but there's another, um, a project called Conflict Kitchen where uh, these artists created a pop-up restaurant that served food from countries that we're in conflict with. Mm. And so uh, you not only got to eat that cuisine, but you also, it you know, came on like a tray with a tray liner that, you know, had facts about those countries. And, and facts that included, you know, their, like who the pop star is and, you know, what, what movies they like. And mm. so not like dry facts, but facts about contemporary life. And really humanizing the people that we're killing. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> subversive. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Well, I've known, so I'm in, in very interested in kind of Israeli-Palestinian um, coexistence movements, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is food-based because getting people together to eat and cook food is it sort makes, of erases some of the political. Yeah, differences. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, there's so many examples of, now that you mentioned that, there's a, a project that the future farmers do in Oslo. Um, that's this uh, public ovens for baking bread. And uh, there's a large Syrian population there. And so they have this huge history or culture of bread baking. So it really brings the two cultures together and they can share in this thing. And like, un, you know, through through the thing that's grown on the land, they like come together to make this this nourishing, you know, meal together. It's great. great. Yeah. So, so utopianism and also art. I'm just thinking. We were talking earlier about the WTO protests, mm-hmm. and for um for those guests that maybe weren't even alive at the time yes, of WTO, yes. can you just describe what the you were there? I was there. Yeah. So what what were the WTO protests? When were they, and why do they matter? Um. So the WTO protest was in '98. Yeah. And um, it was a protest against the World Trade Organization. It it was already um like a ratified thing. It was just sort of tweaking it, uh, different aspects of of the World Trade Organization. And, and it happened in Seattle. And it happened in Seattle. Um. And it was bringing all these world leaders together to um talk about trade and economics, um, the environment, and um. A lot of just regular folks felt that this wasn't the way that we should be going and that and if we are going in this direction, then we need to be like pro-labor, uh, pro-environment. And um, one of my favorite there were so there were people dressed in these turtle outfits and um, there was the Teamsters and Turtles. Um, so it was the, you know, the labor and the environment coming together. And so. Um, there were huge clashes. If this was the largest protest that Seattle had ever seen, people felt um, passionately about these issues, and they attempted to block uh, the meetings that the politicians were having uh, by, you know, blocking the streets, by having street parties, uh, by a number of different tactics. And um, it got violent. There were, um, they call it the Battle of Seattle or Battle in Seattle. There's a movie. There's a yeah. title. Yeah. Um, I mean, I got hit with rubber bullets. I was gassed. Um, it was, you know, something that I had never, it was sort of beyond what I had ever, I'd never experienced anything like that, you know, Um and uh, at the time, I, I owned a pizza place. And, um, <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> like, Where was that? It was on 2nd and Virginia, next to um, a hotel that doesn't exist anymore called the Commodore. Okay. And um, so we kind of set up, like, triage in the back room so people who were hurt could come in and, like, you know, take care of themselves. And we gave free pizza to everybody. And we brought pizza out to the people who were blocking the streets and fed everybody and... So, yeah, that was, um, it was quite an experience. So I bring it up just because the um, example that you gave after the Trump election with the post-it notes, it's kind of like the crowd was gesturing toward a future. We're 20 years later, and maybe there is some wisdom that people have in, you know, in gesturing toward a future that maybe would not be easily conceivable at the time, but it seems like a lot of the, the, the concerns, climate change and so forth, they've actually come to pass. Oh, for sure. And the leveling of Main Street, you know, through Amazon and, you know, a lot of good things, but a lot of change. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, when you look at people's um, paychecks and how they're doing, you know, just the the regular person, um, there's a a big shift in their quality of life. And, you know, I think that the protesters were thinking about the greater good. And, yeah, so it's— you know, now a lot of people are pointing to those things and saying, well, 
the, or the the things that the World Trade Organization is the concerns. Yeah, 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 that those were um, the things that we're now battling with or struggling with. Yeah, uh-huh. so. Yeah. Globalization, yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, people wouldn't try to stop. There wouldn't be these attempts to try to stop protest if it if it wasn't effective. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Got it. So you wrote the Artist in Residence Master Plan for Seattle. You mm-hmm. mentioned that. So how did this come about, and what is what is a master, master plan? plan? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I applied for the job and and was selected. It was wonderful. And uh, I would expect like a bureaucrat to get the job, not an artist. But. Well, oh, so uh, it's interesting in Seattle. They have this uh, this great history of hiring artists to create the master plan. So Lead Pencil Studio created it before me. Buster Simpson created it, created one. Um, there's um, Von Bell did a master plan for Seattle Public Utilities. So there's this really wonderful uh, history of acknowledging that, you know, artists understand public space. I've always wondered this. The fire stations around Seattle are very unique. They have a lot of art incorporated into their architecture. Mm -hmm. So maybe another example of that. Um, I've always been curious about why. Yeah. So um, in Seattle, there's a 1% for public art. So every time there's um, a capital project, 1% of that goes towards public art. So that the construction of fire stations is included in that. So that's why um, they always have some public art attached. So cool. Every time they dig up the street, um, that, you know, creates some money to to make public art. Um, Is that unusual for cities? Do most cities have... Uh, formulation? Most, most cities have some. I mean, some cities have more than 1%. Um, okay. I think San Francisco has 2% plus they have, um, but it's 2% of all buildings. So any construction, you know, it, could you imagine the art in Seattle if it was any construction? Right. God, well, it yeah. would be amazing. Um, and good job security for artists, right? Yeah, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit better. Sure. Yeah. yeah, there would be, it would be like maybe a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you've been involved professionally also in placemaking and just wondering how that sort of grows out of your artistic work and what is it exactly? And don't places evolve on their own or do people make them? And, you know, what's the distinction between a place that sort of has its own essence as a function of its evolution versus um, someone who makes a place? Mm-hmm. Um, so placemaking, I think, is a sort of suggestions about what could happen in a place and how to manage how that happens. And like the idea of placemaking, it's kind of a, you know, city planning comes out of like city planning and that kind of thing. And I think there was some tinkering um, in the 70s and 80s with places that created um, lots of dead zones. I remember. So I grew up in Tacoma and we had the Court C Mall, um, which was an area which was down on Court C in, in the sort of lower hilltop area. Yeah. And it, they shut it off from cars, and they made these great, like, these hippie sprout restaurants and things like that. And it was completely dead because they didn't allow cars through. Yeah. So it was a place you could go, but it was sort of, after years, you yes. know, nobody came. Yeah. So. so it's funny that you bring that up because um, my residency in Tacoma has spent, I've spent almost all my time looking at that area, the 12th Street Hill Climb and the Court C Broadway area. Um, and, you know, part of that happened because they built the mall. And so the Tacoma Mall, the Tacoma Mall, which is the place where when I was in high school, you'd go and that, that, talk with boys and girls or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Everything's happening at the mall. Yeah. So nobody's going downtown anymore. So what happens? And, uh, you know, they tried these different tactics and uh, a lot of them didn't work. And so then you had these kind of depressed dead zones um, that have sort of limped along for all these years. And uh, finally, they're like, well, 
you know, this is a perfectly good space downtown and it could be lively, but what does it need? And it's it's funny because I think, you know, the things that it needs are pretty obvious <laughs> in some ways, but but we don't see them. So what um, are examples? And you mentioned earlier about the rule of 10 things. So yeah. what is that? So you know? if there's if there's 10 or more things in a space, like in a, and I'm not talking about like a city in as a whole, but more like the court C area would be. Um, if there's 10 or more things, then people are likely to go there and uh, it will be lively. So what are things? So things are, you know, there's um, there's retail, there's food, there's a place to sit. Um, there is um, some kind of physical activity that you could do there. So maybe there's like a basketball hoop or some sort of, you know, a place for kids to play or something like that. Um, there is, um, there's lighting, so not just security lighting, but also accent lighting. Um, there's color. There's um, some kind of temporary things happen there as well as permanent things. So you start adding all of these things up and all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're, we're in a place. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. To me, it reminds me of nature, like how nature, when you're in a natural place, it's complex. There's so many different things going on, colors and light and shape and change and diversity. And in human-made places, sometimes they're just not that interesting, like the Quartzy Mall, maybe, Yeah. you know, in the 80s or 70s. Yeah. yeah. What, the difference between the complex and the complicated? Yeah. 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 And I think that it's trying to make the place um, complex again. Like nuanced. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, thinking about like how all people use it, how young people use it, how elders use it, and what makes people feel safe in a place. And um, so it needs to be, you know, needs to be clean and it needs to... Right. Yeah. yeah, we want safety, but then also adventurous or risky too, right? There's some excitement if it, something is uncertain and yeah, striking the and balance. that you can um, discover something there that yeah. you don't, it's not all laid out perfectly, but there's like a like something around the corner. And I mean, I think that's why... Americans love, you know, European cities because it's like, oh, what's over here? What's over here? Sure. Yeah. 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 It's very rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, also, when we were prepping for the conversation today, we talked about places that have been catastrophically destroyed. Mm -hmm. So um, like uh, Vesuvius came to mind or Hiroshima, Dresden, and so forth. And you mentioned Frankfurt mm -hmm. was a place that didn't wasn't really a place or it wasn't so... I mean, they destroyed, it, yeah. you destroyed it and rebuilt it. And it kind of, they didn't quite, in my in my opinion, they never quite got it. It doesn't yeah. really feel like, it just feels kind of strange there. And how could it have been done? I've been to Frankfurt too, kind of on the layover. It is a very strange, kind of discombobulated and sort of flat yeah. place. So. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know, I haven't like made a study of it, but I mean, it'd be interesting to like sort of walk around and take stock of what's happening there and well to me what's interesting about you is that you're an artist and you um you deal you don't necessarily need to do an academic study because you sort of take emotionally from a place and it probably informs what you do what you give back what you create out of it so i'm just wondering what happens in your opinion to us emotionally when a place is destroyed and maybe isn't rebuilt in a way that is stimulating i mean i think that the reason why my work is um, successful is that it's actually uh, bringing together the two. It's bringing together the sort of researched historical past and then this experiential and um, uh, sensorial sense of a place. And, and I think that oftentimes you sense something because like I will sense something and then I'll start digging in um, to research in that of that area and like, why am I feeling this? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm feeling this because, you know, it's um, 
there there was a wetland here and mm-hmm. they drained it mm-hmm. but um somehow you can still sense that the uh environment isn't quite right mm-hmm. um that that wetland should have remained and so i think that that's you know sort of my to get kind of woo like my body becomes this dowsing rod uh-huh. for like you know mm-hmm. what what the the city removed or what was um catastrophically destroyed or yeah yeah so your work, I think, is cautionary, um, and it maybe points us toward emotionally what we can do in terms of how we connect to places so that we're healthier, mm-hmm. more comfortable. Do you think that we're, as Seattleites, especially maybe those that aren't new arrivals, because our audience consists of people that are newly arrived and also people that have been here a long time, maybe for that second group, um, do you feel like we're just invariably in Seattle, not Tacoma, not other places, but because of the rate of change, inevitably doomed to become more and more disconnected here, um, more alienated? And thinking back again to the WTO protests and what the caution was, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago about our economy and how things were changing with all the wonderful things that are happening, are we becoming more alienated? I mean, I think we are becoming more alienated, but I also think that we are seeing that we are becoming more alienated and we're doing things to um, to prevent that or to push against it. I don't know that we can prevent it, but um, so... I think that people more and more are understanding that we need, um, you know, we need community. We need places to connect with each other. We need to bring old Seattle and new Seattle together um, through like night markets and through whatever, you know, like re-envisioning life in these places that was um, denuded. And I mean, my hope as an optimist is uh, that we will make enough new experiences in these places that we all feel attached to them again. Awesome. Yes. Good. So one of the things I, uh, we can close with is that um, I always ask our guests also to bring in something physical to into the studio to share with our audience. So you brought um, two things. Yes. What do we have here? Um, so we have a, a 3D printed rock that I collected from the top of Mount Whitney. It's gorgeous. Um, it's blue and it's, um, the rock itself was, um, like mm, three feet by four feet, but you know, it gets shrunk down in the 3d printer. So now it's like, um, four by five. Unlike the colossal squid. Yes. I guess in a similar fashion. (laughs) The art is shrinking everything. Um, and so it, it's kind of a funny, um, you know, climbing Mount Whitney is, um, you know, kind of a feat. And uh, to have this plastic souvenir of that by my own creation, um, I find kind of funny and charming. And it was created in real time. Is that right? Simultaneously with your being there in another place? Um, so it wasn't quite simultaneously because there's no internet connection on the top of Mount Whitney. But um, so what this was a project that I was doing during this um, hike of the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada. And every day I would sort of collect a rock using uh, an app on my phone where I would take photos um, 360 degrees around this rock, and then they would get stitched together through this app, um, turned into a 3D mesh file, and I would send them to the museums where they were printed. Okay. Um, so there was a slight lag because I had to get into a town that had an internet connection. Um, but it was uh, creating this these Karens of these kind of plastic rocks um, that were printed in colors coded to the elevation that I found them. So okay. they also kind of act like a map and they they grew in their accretion as I hiked. Awesome. And then they, we have these cards that look like tarot cards, maybe. 
Yeah. So um, I have this this little project that I've undertaken, which is a set of ideation cards, um, and uh, they help um, orient people towards new ideas. They're good for uh, if you're you're stuck. Um, you can kind of use them like tarot cards and pull them out and read through them um, about your uh, creative problem. Awesome. And are these available for purchase? They are. So there's four themes, uh, form, principle, tactic, and question. Can I select one from each? Sure. So um, the form that you have selected is party. Sounds good. The principle is continuum. Okay. The question is, um, what is inspiring about this place, these people, this situation? That's quite apt. And the tactic is power inversion. So how might this play out? Um, so you might decide to host a party, host a party. And the theme is something, some research that you do about this place, this pe- these people, this situation where you find something that, um, happened here. This is hilarious because the tactic is power inversion. Uh-huh. And then, um, you're going to sort of subvert the power paradigm, um, somehow. Of the people maybe. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's going to point out. Uh, so this the is principle. the principles continuum. So I guess it's pointing out how um, the things from the past are still in play today. Awesome. So that's sort of how that game would go. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Well, we're going to wrap up today. Um, I understand, though, that one of your next projects is a sex tour of Seattle. It is. And um, you'll be delivering that in time for Valentine's Day 2019. I hope so. That's and, fingers crossed. And so I encourage our guests to... Um, Visit us at ekreg.com, and we will provide a link to how you can sign up for the tour. Yeah, that would and be that'll good. be offered through Atlas Obscura. I think so, and yeah, we're, it's still um, it's in, in, in design. In design, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you heard it here first. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. For our next episode, we'll explore what happens when a real estate developer puts so much of his creative self-expression at the service of the bottom line. Bill Parks is a developer with a lifetime of experience creating one-of-a-kind communities in Seattle, from Green Lake, Fremont, and South Park. He has been described by the Seattle Times as a unicorn running in a herd of mules. Bill is engaging and passionate about building homes that matter in Seattle, so please join us. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. If you would like to have a set of these ideation cards, um, we will gladly provide a free copy to the first person to email wild in the subject line to edwardk at ekreg.com. They'll be available after Thanksgiving 2018, and you can be the very first to receive a set. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We're excited to share with you that our podcast is available through iTunes and Google Play. For more information, go to our website, ekreg.com, and you'll find a link to both. Um, Send your questions to edwardk at ekreg.com as well. And if there's a place that matters to you in Seattle, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear from you. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time. And uh, until then, enjoy your day.